Good evening. My name is Moira Shuri, and I'm the Executive Director of Zocalo Public Square. Welcome to our 10th annual Book Prize event. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We examine essential questions in an open-minded and democratic spirit. Our next event will focus on wildfires. And right after that, we will be discussing how we can build a better Summer Olympics. Please go to our website to learn more, zocalopublicsquare.org. Tonight, you're in for a wonderful program, starting with Zocalo's board chair, Krist Novoselic, who will introduce a lecture by our book prize winner, William Sturkey. Historian David Blight will then interview William Sturkey about the themes covered in his winning book, Hattiesburg. Please welcome Krist Novoselic. I'm Chris Novoselic, and I'm proud to be the new chair of the Board of Trustees at Zocalo Public Square. Zocalo is about civic engagement, about building the public square, and, as we will see tonight, about offering serious scholarship on vital subjects in an accessible, fun way. At Zocalo, everyone is invited and all are welcome. Our next event, by the way, is about how humans can coexist with monster wildfires. Before I became board chair, I was one of the judges of the Zocalo Book Prize. This is the 10th year that Zocalo has given a book prize to the author of the U.S. nonfiction book that best enhances our understanding of community and the forces that strengthen or undermine human connectedness. Now, I have the honor to present the 10th Annual Zocalo Book Prize to William Sturkey, a historian at the University of North Carolina. This comes with our congratulations and a $5,000 prize. William is winning the Zocalo Book Prize for his extraordinary book, Hattiesburg, An American City in Black and White. He offers us detailed and moving personal profiles of black and white citizens of Hattiesburg, Mississippi over multiple generations to give us, in the words of one of my fellow judges, a rich and deeply nuanced account of the development of the white and black communities of Hattiesburg, Mississippi under the apartheid system of Jim Crow. One aspect of the book is its seamless melding of cultural and economic history. Another was the nostalgia of many of Hattiesburg African-American residents for the community that disappeared with the victories of the civil rights movement. Why would people miss a time when they had fewer rights? Professor Sturkey's book describes a way in which the African-American community of Hattiesburg found strength in one another and the institutions they built. And this brings us to the subject of the Zocalo Book Prize Lecture that Professor Sturkey is about to deliver. His lecture is titled, How Do Oppressed People Build Community? After the lecture, we will be joined by a great friend of Zocalo, David Blight, a historian at Yale and author of Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. That book sadly did not win the Zocalo Book Prize. David instead had to settle for the Pulitzer Prize. Now, I am very pleased to introduce the winner of the 10th Annual Zocalo Book Prize, William Sturkey.
honored to be the recipient of the 2020 Zocalo Book Prize. Um, it's really an incredible award to receive, and I'm so grateful to have had the chance to write about this incredible Black community that existed during Jim Crow. So, as you know, I, I, I wrote a book about this city called Hattiesburg, which sits in the Mississippi Piney Woods, just about 100 miles northeast of New Orleans. It's not a big city, um, but it's a city that was very much a major player in the civil rights movement. And it is a city that I used to explore what black life was like during Jim Crow, beyond the segregation and the violence that you know about, what were people's lives actually like day to day? So the book is actually about two communities, um, one white and one black that were separate, they were segregated, um, but whose destinies were inevitably tied together. And a sense of community was essential to the black population of Hattiesburg. There are many testaments about the importance of community to those folks. But one of my favorites, and the one I want to start with tonight, actually comes not from Hattiesburg, but Chicago. In 1917 Chicago, the Great Migration is underway. Black people are pouring out of the South by the tens of thousands. And um, as this is happening, the Urban League sent a representative to Chicago to study this mass migration, to ask people questions like, why did you come? What are your hopes? What are your dreams? To better understand this exodus. And when the Urban League rep reached an area near 44th Street in the Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago, he noticed something that was different. And what he noticed was that the people in that section of the neighborhood weren't just from the same state or even the same city. He found that almost all of them were from the same neighborhood in this place called Hattiesburg, Mississippi. This is what the report said. There is in Chicago, a little colony of Mississippians from Hattiesburg principally, which has been transplanted to, to completely has retained practically all of its customs and mores. And the study highlighted their cohesion in Chicago. They are desirous of helping each other, the report noted. We stick by one another, one of the migrants told an interviewer. This community, which included about 150 families, had a barbershop called the Hattiesburg Barbershop, and it had a social club named the Hattiesburg Social Club. And when the Urban League interviewer went to ask one of those migrants why they were so tight, why they all settled and lived among one another, the resident responded, I guess it's because they made us stick together down there. So the community wasn't necessarily the place, the community was the people, and they just simply picked it up and they moved it over 800 miles to Chicago. The other interesting thing about Hattiesburg is that it was a brand new town. So it was founded in 1882, which means that any of those people in Chicago were actually older than Hattiesburg itself. They had come from elsewhere. So Hattiesburg was a place where black and white people came in search of opportunity. Hattiesburg was a town of the new South, a place with railroad and sawmill jobs that offered wage labor as an alternative to sharecropping. Of course, sharecropping was this vicious agrarian system that tied people to the land. Sharecroppers were tenant farmers who paid a share of their crop to landowners in exchange for their tenancy. On the surface, the agreement seemed reasonable. You pay a little bit of what you grow, you keep the rest. But sharecroppers, especially black sharecroppers, were cheated horribly. Landlords doctored scales, they cheated in court, they threatened black farmers with violence and all these other things to spin people into a cycle of debt. In Hattiesburg, this new South City that offered wage labor, um, the opportunity for work was a bit different. If you took a job as a railroad man or a porter, a laundress, or even a sawmill laborer, there was a more stable exchange between labor and pay. If you worked all day, you were going to be paid for that day of work. And so people came to Hattiesburg, these men and women who decided their possibilities looked better 
in this town of the New South than they had in the cotton field. Of course, in Hattiesburg, their lives were limited by Jim Crow segregation, this American system of racial apartheid that dominated life in the South for almost a century. A lot of people think of Jim Crow as being a minor inconvenience, a backseat on the bus, or a segregated water fountain, but it was so much more than that. It was, of course, separate and unequal schools. Hattiesburg didn't even have a high school for black kids until 1921. It was segregated employment opportunities, black jobs, white jobs, all the daily stuff, the daily interactions, um, the fears that you had about your child, the way that you thought about your future, the way that it affected your ability to accumulate wealth. There are no old wealthy black families in Hattiesburg because black people were not allowed to accumulate wealth like white people. The same can be said of nearly every city in the South. Jim Crow explains more of our black white wealth gap than any other dynamic in American history. And then, of course, there's disfranchisement, not being able to vote, having your taxes go to pay for other people's schools and roads. And then, of course, the violence from the childhood brawls to police brutality, the threat of murder and the local history of lynchings. Nine black men were lynched in Hattiesburg between 1890 and 1928. That's what black people faced in Hattiesburg. That's the story that so many people know. And that's much of the story of what we think we know about Black history between Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Movement, this black hole, this nadir of black life. But that's not the complete story of black people in the South. And so my book is largely about that life. It is about the people who came to Hattiesburg, either as they were passing through or making it their permanent home. It is about the living, breathing community that black people built there, even within the constraints of Jim Crow. And I tell the story of that community from the late 1800s to the 1960s, when Hattiesburg helped birth a local civil rights movement that ultimately removed Jim Crow from their society. There are several examples I could share to help illustrate how this community functioned, but my favorite ones, or at least the ones I find most remarkable, come from the Great Depression. First of all, during the 1930s alone, Hattiesburg's Black community of about 10,000 people had over 50 organizations. We're talking about Great Depression era Mississippi. Things are about as bad as you can get. Most of these folks only earned a couple hundred dollars a year at most. Only a few of them had graduated high school. Probably none of them had ever voted. And here they were with 50 vibrant community organizations in the 1930s. Another effort I thought was so remarkable was this event called the 1934 Negro Fair. The local white high school received about $50,000 from the federal government to build a new gymnasium that black people could never use. At the very same time this was happening, the local black community worked together to build their own recreational park for local black kids who could never enter that white gymnasium. And they did this through this week-long event called the Negro Fair. This fair opened in 1934 with two black marching bands leading a parade of local kids through the city. It included concerts, lectures, and a, lectures and a bake sale. They even had a white citizen's day where local black women sold plates of chicken to white residents. And it took them longer than they wanted, but they ultimately built that park. And it's still there in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, placed there by a black community organizing in the nation's poor state during the Great Depression. Another impressive effort from the 1930s was this effort called the Union Choir Service, which formed in 1931. And out of, this, out of the city's six largest black congregations. And what they did was they held monthly singing competitions to raise money for needy families. On one Sunday per month, 
members of each of the six congregations would gather at one of the member churches. Each church choir was given a chance to sing two to three traditional spirituals, and during each choir's performance, a collection basket was passed through the crowd. And so people could vote for their favorite choir based on how much money they donated during that choir's singing. So whichever church choir collected the most money was declared the winner and held bragging rights for the month. And that was sort of fun, yet it was competition. But all the money went to paying to help feed and clothe needy families during the Great Depression. So it can be incredibly bleak to think about Black life during the Jim Crow South, especially during the Great Migration, especially during the Great Depression, especially in Mississippi. But this community was always so active and engaged, working together to help members of their society navigate life during an incredibly challenging time. So how do you build community? How did these incredible people build this community? Let me offer several answers that apply to Hattiesburg in the hopes that some of these might resonate with people interested in building community today. The first thing is probably the most obvious. It's essential to understand that their community was rooted in a sense of collective experience. Their society didn't necessarily discriminate differently between Baptists and Methodists, or men and women all the time, or bankers or sawmill workers. The biggest factor was that they were all black. No matter what you did, no matter what you said, you were black. And it's that experience that helped bound them together. That's what the respondent meant when she said, I guess it's because they made us stick together down there. There was conflict in this community and there were diverse, diverse voices in this community, but that community was constructed on the basis of a shared experience. That experience here was blackness. But that was the bond. And I think that was the most important thing to understand about their communities. That's what brought them together. They knew exactly what brought them together, what they shared. The second is thinking local. Black Hattiesburgers were connected to other developments across America. They paid attention to political change and to other black news across the nation, but they were intensely local. At the time, Mississippi's white politicians were extraordinarily racist. Some of them openly called for the lynching of African-Americans. Our politicians today, no matter what you might think of their rhetoric, they didn't hold a candle to what some of these people said in the 1930s, 1940s Mississippi. Of course, it would have made a great deal of sense if local Hattiesburgers had protested or objected to everything these white racist politicians said, and they certainly did do that. And they certainly also objected to the daily violations of their constitutional rights. But Black Hattiesburgers also understood that they lived in a system where a lot of these things were beyond their immediate control. And they responded by turning their energies inward. They weren't always necessarily worried about the White House or the governor's mansion. They said, what can we do here and now in this place? Our world is very different, but I think there is something we can learn about thinking and operating locally. And that sometimes also means more quietly. The third is institution building. So these folks couldn't go to the white schools, so they built their own. They couldn't join the white chamber of commerce, so they made their own. They couldn't serve in the city government, so they constructed their own parallel form of municipal governance in their community. They couldn't shop in the white stores and restaurants, so they made their own. They took the institutions that they had, especially churches and schools, and they turned them into places that could help fulfill people's needs and enable the less fortunate to build better lives. Those institutions became sites for charity work and community engagement. They organized food and toy drives for needy children. They held those choir competitions for cash charities. They organized that fair to build a new playground. They poured their resources and time into institution building. They did not have much. They never had much. 
but what they did have went into their institutions. And a huge part of that was that they shopped local and they bought black. If you want to build community, spend your money in the community, put your money where your mouth is, I think is a lesson we can learn from those black folks living in the Jim Crow South. And the fourth one is to invest heavily in your children. In one of the oral histories from Hattiesburg, a 1937 graduate of the local high school said, it's not like today where you only look after your children. It was more like a family setting. All of the children were community children. This community poured everything they could into their children. When they finally did get a high school in 1921, that high school became the center of black communal activity. The entire community invested in those kids. They turned out, they showed up for graduations, for football games, for baccalaureates. They were all packed with support. They spent their time. Local black women sometimes brought food into the schools, cooking the lunches of those kids. And one of the most amazing things I learned about that community was when I would check the PTA roster versus the census records and the city directories, and I kept finding all these members of the local PTA who were neither parents or teachers. They were just local volunteers investing in the children of their own community. So let me move, move toward closing. What I think and hope Hattiesburg does is to capture this living, breathing, beautiful and tragic black community that existed within the confines of Jim Crow. And what I show here is how, even amid all the oppression, black people found and created rich lives and incredible opportunities. They were not merely victims, and their lives in the Jim Crow South should never be reduced simply to what was happening to them. And so the book proceeds chronologically through Jim Crow. It flips back and forth between these local black and white communities through representative perspectives of these communities. It shows white leaders trying to plug into American modernization while also establishing control and maintaining control over African-Americans. And, and then at the same time, the black perspective shows how these structural and economic changes altered Jim Crow for the black men and women who lived in and passed through Hattiesburg. And so in a narrative history of Jim Crow in a place, this book traces how these processes affected the framework of race in the modern American South. Hattiesburg here is a lens, I think, or even a character, if you will, that I used to tell a much larger history of Jim Crow in the American South. So I appreciate you coming. I hope that you enjoy the book and I look forward to talking with you all more about it in the Q&A. Thank you so much. Um, hello, I'm David Blight. Uh, I teach at Yale University. Uh, William, it is uh, a great pleasure to be on this program with you, and it was an honor to have a chance to read this book. Um, you've written a terrific study of a, a unique, singular place, but as you've just said in your talk, uh, a place that represents so many others across the South, and for that matter, so many ideas about American history over almost a century. Um, the book again is Hattiesburg, an American city in black and white. Uh, I wanna remind the audience that uh, there will be a Q&A at the end of 10 or 15 minutes at least. You can submit questions uh, through the chat, I believe, and I will be seeing those questions and choosing some of them uh, at, at the end. I wanna say too, it's a thrill to be uh, working with, with Zocalo again, I did a program out in Los Angeles uh, at least a year ago about uh, my previous book on Douglas. 
and it was it was a fantastic experience. It was in a big studio full of people. Uh, in fact, it was a, it was one of the uh, one of one of the events where I had the most fun in a lot of book touring. I can assure you. <laughs> I wish we were doing this in person, William. But uh, hey, why not? We're doing it this way. I want to go right to the theme you stressed in your talk to start, and that is this idea of community. Uh, it's such a resonant idea right now, obviously, with almost, well, most of us anyway, uh, sitting at home or in an office, uh, living through our computers, uh, living through technology, isolated. But here's a story of people proving that it is not just a cliche that suffering uh, can lead to ideas and growth and creativity. Uh, this book, this story, Hattiesburg, shows us that it was, I'll use your word, the tragedy of racism, the tragedy of segregation in all of its ways that forced the creation of this community. Um, so I just want to get you to talk a little bit more about why those Hattiesburgers, as you call them, when they get to Chicago and they get interviewed, they are so proud that they're from Hattiesburg. It, are there unique elements of that community, where they had come from, how they had come because of the lumber industry, or how they had built Mobile Street, which you should talk about a bit. This was the main street of the black community, which was where most of the, the major black businesses were. What was it about Hattiesburg that would have made these people so proud to say, that's where I'm from when they get to Chicago? You know, I think the, the most important thing was that there was a pride in literally the bricks and the mortar that they built. They built all of the structures themselves, you know, mm -hmm. two hands in many cases. They raised the money themselves. They put in the time. And that, you know, that's something that really bound them together. All of them came from other places in the Jim Crow South. And they faced things that were very similar to what they then experienced in Hattiesburg. But it was in Hattiesburg where they really began to develop things like these these new elementary schools that they built for their kids. You know, these um, these these clubs that they might have for workers. And one of the things that I thought was so fascinating about studying this community was the way that they would attach titles to just these everyday positions that we would never think very much of. Yeah. So, you know, like, for example, there's this um, there's this turpentine mill in town and the black men who work at the turpentine mill. I mean, they are the lowest paid folks in town, at least among black males, they form this social club and they all give themselves titles. You know, there's the president, there's the vice president, there's the treasurer. And these are just everyday working class black folks taking a great deal of pride in belonging to that club, belonging to that community. And I mean, they were just so ambitious. There is, um, there's, a there's a black family at the center of my book and the names of their children speak volumes. They had, they had a child that they named William Lloyd Garrison Smith, you yeah. know, after the most famous white abolitionist right. in the country. And um, they just held such a pride in the area that they built, I think in large part because so many of them had were either a generation or themselves were former, formerly enslaved people. And so that experience of just having nothing, of having no rights, of having no mobility at all, was so important to that first generation, you know, even after Reconstruction, even after Jim Crow begins to harden, that the things that they could build for themselves, they took such great pride in. 
And they had such great dreams and hopes, I think, for future generations that would follow them. Well, you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name a few places here, which you know so well, that, that just stood out for me in reading this book. And you can say whatever you want about them, because these were centers. These were places that they built. Uh, the St. John's Church, or the Eureka School, or my favorite, the Smith Drugstore. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, the Smith Drugstore in some ways. I mean, if this gets made into a movie, uh, there are going to be a lot of scenes around that Smith Drugstore. Built by, um, was it Hammond Smith and his, well, his brother Charles was a doctor, right? A physician. Right. And Hammond was the pharmacist. They had both gone away to black colleges, earned their degrees. And there they were building this business. But it was much more than a drugstore. And St. John's Church was much more than just a church. I mean, it was a community center. And eventually becomes the center of the civil rights movement in, in Hattiesburg. And the Eureka School, the pride people took in that. Places, right? It, whether they're brick and mortar or they're whatever they are, they had built these places within this world that constantly kept saying to them, you're not equal, you're not capable, you're never gonna have this, you can't aspire for that, and yet people did anyway. Talk about any one of those places you want or all of them if you can. <laughs> yeah, well, the um, Eureka High School, just very quickly, you know, it's this black school and it's, it's actually built by a, there's a, a referendum passed in the city, but it's in response to the Great Migration. So many black people left that yeah. local white leaders started saying to the local black business community, what can we do so that these people aren't just dipping out all the time? You know, everybody's yeah. leaving. We want the they labor. labor. They wanted their labor to stay put. Right. And so that was largely in response to that. And, you know, I would find all these articles about different initiatives. You know, obviously there are things happening at the school in terms of education. That's obvious. But, you know, they would have like these weekly beautification projects where you'd have five, six, seven year old kids coming out, trimming the hedges to make sure that the high school looked nice. Because even though it was built with public money, it wasn't always subsidized continuously with public money. The Smith Drugstore itself, I think, speaks volumes about the importance of a black pharmacy in a Jim Crow community. And so the Smith Drugstore, I, I, I have this family named Smith throughout the narrative, and I follow them through every single of the black chapters, and this, the black community is largely built around them. And by the time the civil rights movement comes, they're right there. Nobody knows who they are, but their names are on the cornerstone of the church for the civil rights movement, you know, where Howard Zinn and John Lewis and Ella Baker and all those people are all right. meeting. And um, the thing about the Smith Drug Store is it's founded by these two brothers who are the sons of a man who had been born into slavery. And he was a man who had been emancipated as a, as, as a youngster. He was six years old when he was emancipated. And he had found great hope in education. And he was ultimately disappointed by that, but he had stressed that you could never work for a white person and that you always must become educated. So his kids, he made sure that they went to high school. They had to go to a high school that was far away from town. They went to college, they had medical degrees, and then their dad bought them this store. And so that type of store in a black community, it's a central hub. One of the students at the high school compared it to Arnold's from Happy Days, for example. So people were in and out, and it was a place where you saw a black doctor with degrees on the wall. I mean, yeah. talk about a role model, right? Forget about LeBron James or somebody like that momentarily. 
these were the people that you lived with in your community. There was two black doctors. They both worked here. And you saw what they looked like. You saw how they spoke. You saw, you know, the degrees on the wall. They also sold everything that you needed, for, you know, from, from pharmaceuticals, obviously, but cigarettes, you know, tampons, um, tobacco, they cashed checks, things like that. And they were just, they were in the middle of this black business district. And so they played this essential role for decades and decades and decades. Everybody that came through there talked about looking up to them, engaging with them in some way, shape or form. But, you know, African-American professionals play these incredible roles in black communities, both by wading through everyone's lives at some point and then serving as role models. But then also being able to take the wealth that they earn through their businesses and then channel them back into developing the community itself by investing in churches and schools. You know, I don't know if you really were fully aware of it, my man, but you made a pharmacist the hero of your book. (laughs) serious yeah by the end to me was in some ways well there are many heroes in your book but he is kind of the hero in the end uh and who knew a pharmacist could be such a you know a remarkable community leader uh i mean you you have that young guy or you you quote somebody saying i grew up wanting to be a pharmacist because of him you know, that's not yeah. what any kid would say today. Well, nothing against pharmacists, but um, I want you to talk just a bit more, if you would, about this world of segregation, which is, you know, is, t- is, is, is taking hold from the moment Hattiesburg was founded. Hattiesburg's founded more than a decade after the Civil War. Um, it's a world of laws, of course, and if Americans know anything about Jim Crow, they know it's a bunch of laws. But it's really ways of life, isn't it? It's attitudes, it's assumptions, it's uh, elements of fear, it's, it's spatial, it's where you can go and where you can't go. But it's especially a world of unspoken statements, uh, a world of, of beliefs that are always around you. And there are far more beliefs not written down in many ways by Jim Crow than, than there are the laws that are written down. Talk a bit more about that world and living within it, because that's the core of your story, I think. You know, Hattiesburg has this great oral history program mm. out of Southern Miss. And in the 70s and 80s, they started interviewing all these local people. And, you know, historians like us, we know about, you know, voter disfranchisement, right. you know, right. legal segregation on railroads and buses and that sort of a thing. But that's not what the older black folks talked about when they talked about Jim Crow and these old histories. They talked about, you know, the feeling of walking toward a group of white people when you were a young girl and you knew that you might have to step off the sidewalk if they gave you a certain look, right? Or if they didn't make a move to turn or, you know, move out of the way or anything, you knew you had to step out of the sidewalk. And it's a gazillion interactions like that every day. Now, in the black community, you're a bit more insulated because you're just not, you're just not around white folks. But right. out in public, out in the broader sphere, you know, every single interaction, and Richard Wright obviously talks about this a lot too, but every single interaction, you know, there was this negotiation based on this, you know, established set of principles, but that the white person was always in charge and that this could bend. It, was, it could be very flexible at times. Yeah. But... When you screwed up as the black person, the onus was always on you and the consequences 
were incredibly severe, you know, from Emmett Till whistling at a white woman, right? Or was somebody just saying, okay, that was kind of funny, we'll just let it go. You just never knew exactly the way that your behavior could affect somebody and how that might then snowball into a really serious crisis. And so as a black person, I mean, the stress of living in that situation yeah. is just extraordinary. And imagine the way that you fought, thought and feared for your children out in public. Yeah, because sometimes Jim Crow meant um, just, you never knew quite when it might be coming, but it would mean vicious insults to your basic dignity. Uh, I mean, there's, there's one unforgettable, there are many examples of this in your book, but there's one unforgettable story you have, which is during the 30s, the depth of the depression, the American Red Cross, which apparently had rules that they could not discriminate, were handing out food in City Hall in Hattiesburg. But the city, the mayor, uh, ruled that the food could not go to black people. I mean, black people show up, but they can't distribute food. I mean, that's just, I mean, yeah, you know, we, we run out of words to even describe that. That's worse than an insult to your dignity. That means you're hungry. Um, but, but it's that kind of thing that, um, it, 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 it's, a, it's a way of life that people had to find ways to cope with. Now, I want to say, I want to say too, this is a great work of scholarship. I mean, the research in this book is frankly um, amazing. Uh, I don't know how many hours of your life you spent reading newspapers, especially that Hattiesburg American, but you also read all the, the national black newspapers because they would cover towns in the South and Hattiesburg would be covered in the national press. Um, but I, but at, at the core of this book, to me, as a reader, and I hope people out there find this, um, is that you're a storyteller. Yeah. Uh, this is a deeply researched book. Uh, and it went through, you know, Harvard University Press. Uh, I've done two books with them. I, I know what they put you through. <laughs> so talk a bit about how you came to tell stories about this. How did, you know, there's so much detail here. You're covering 80 years. Uh, you're covering epochs of time. You got the Great Depression. You got World War II. You got the Civil Rights Movement and so on. But you end up telling stories. So how do you do that? Look, I, I think, David, that's, that's one of the essential parts also. If, had I had more time to offer more suggestions about what building community means, I think that's one of the essential suggestions that I would have said to it would have been my fifth point. I only had four, but you know, this, the story of the American South, you yeah, know, they, they were supposed to use trinities, you know, never go more than three ideas because people can't hold them in their head, but go ahead, go for the fifth. Right. Well, the story of the American South has been so dominated by segregationists, you know, and the way that we create knowledge, you know, We've had this controversy, you know, on my campus at UNC Chapel Hill, all over the South about these Confederate monuments. And it's really a, an argument about who we are and what we value. And this story has been so whitewashed for so long. And part of that is because of the realities of Jim Crow. And so what happened with Hattiesburg, with the black people in Hattiesburg, it was essential for the, the people in those community at the time to tell their stories. But everything was so segregated that even the newspaper itself was segregated. So black people would only usually appear in the newspaper when they were arrested or they were harmed or killed in some way, in something yeah. like that. They put the football team in there, but virtually nothing else. But so what the black community in Hattiesburg, 
lynchings were always covered, though, right? Right, yeah, lynchings, of course, were covered. What the black community in Hattiesburg did was they had a couple of correspondents that would send updates from their neighborhood to the national edition of the Chicago Defender. Right. So that the national edition of the Chicago Defender printed updates from neighborhoods like Hattiesburg, and it then sent them back down so they could open up the paper and they could see their lives happening in the newspaper, just like the white community did too. And so that helped them, you know, build community, talk about what they were doing, talk about, you know, their bridge clubs and their cake parties and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But then for a historian like me operating in, you know, in the year 2010 and beyond, I was then able to follow those paths. It was almost like they left me breadcrumbs. So as, you know, so much of Southern history is just focused on white people or what happened to black people, these folks, because they spent so much time sending their stories to newspapers that would actually print positive news from their community, they allow historians today to use internet searches, you know, or search engines or databases, which are incredible, which you couldn't have even done 20 years ago, to then find examples. And I found stories out of Hattiesburg going back to 1908 with the Indianapolis Freeman. And so that really helped me then piece together who these people were to tell their stories and then to also to understand exactly what community meant to them. And you know, those black papers, uh, many of them became quite famous papers, Pittsburgh Courier, Chicago Defender, Indianapolis Freeman, many, many, New York Age, many, many others. They were in a sense, national newspapers. They, they, they had even national you know, subscriptions and so on because they were trying to cover Blackley, the crisis magazine of the NAACP. Um, I'd like to get you to stop too and talk about, well, two of these big epic periods. Um, first of all, the 30s, the depression years. You, you have an interesting thread of your book is just how important the New Deal became for Hattiesburg and therefore federal aid and the federal government without without New Deal policies, which, as we know, were themselves racist, especially in the first New Deal, et cetera. But without federal intervention and aid, Hattiesburg would have died during the Great Depression. And there was tremendous support. Like you, you show voting statistics, 90 percent of white people in that region are voting for Franklin Roosevelt. Um, they loved Roosevelt. They loved the New Deal. They loved the federal government. Well, to an extent. But talk a bit about that, because you've got a great story here of how the federal government is loved in one decade. Fifteen years later, it's not going to be loved because it's about civil rights. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, so much of the story of race in the South, you know, it's about slavery. And then we jump to the Brown versus Board of Education. And yeah. when you look versus Board of Education, and even when you look at the Civil War, it's this notion of, you know, white Southerners saying, well, you know, this is our way of life, stay out of our affairs, and that sort of a thing. But when you look at the New Deal, and even the era before that, white Southerners are saying, come on down, federal government, get bigger, bring more jobs, do everything you can, we're crawling over each other to get resources. And that's because how the New Deal worked often was that for things like the WPA, the Works Progress Administration that built schools and parks and libraries all over the country, local municipalities, which in the South were completely white because black people couldn't vote, would submit projects for consideration and they would get grants and they would build those projects. Well, because black people were completely excluded from the political process in places like Hattiesburg, 
those projects only went toward helping white, you yeah. know, white neighborhoods or white schools or whatever. I still right. think we need to learn a lot more about this. But had had white Southerners had their druthers in the 1930s, and had they even been able to continue to exclude black people from access to federal re resources, they would have been completely socialist in the 1930s. Their problem with federal spending really became when the federal government said, you've got to allow black people to tap into this too. Right. And so we get all these school gyms, for example, like the one in Hattiesburg. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I talked about this Negro fair, the, these folks building their, their, their park. And the white school gets $50,000 from the federal government. Mm -hmm. $50,000, here's a brand new gymnasium. Not one single black person ever got to use that gymnasium. Right. And in this community, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, 93%, 94% vote. It's not even remotely close. They love Franklin Roosevelt. Right. It's just at that very moment when the Democratic Party says, okay, we need black people to have, to be a part of this country too. That's when the problem arises. But I think, you know, it's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, every single major university in the South got, got New Deal funding. You know, we have all these places all across the, the region that are named for these people that we now have some issues with, but really, we should have a Franklin Roosevelt building on every single major college campus in the entire South. You know, yeah. it, and of course, many of these campuses were segregated. So while the laws themselves might not have been exactly racist, right? The law wasn't necessarily racist. But yeah. when you give money to a school that doesn't allow black people, that only benefits white people. And that's the story of the New Deal in the South. And it's just, you know, the story is always black people are at the bottom. And the federal government is here and the Constitution is here. And there's these white Southerners here. How do black people get access to the promises of the Constitution? Well, you heard it here tonight, folks. Uh, every every university campus in the American South should have a, a monument to the New Deal. I mean, I don't know what our odds are on getting that, but let, let's go for it. Anyway, I wanted to get you to talk a bit about World War II as well. I mean, another place in your story uh, in this then we may have to go toward Q&A pretty soon, but it's Fort Shelby, this amazing military base, huge military base that is created in 1940-41 in the buildup, even, well even before the U.S. gets into the war, transforms Hattiesburg, brings thousands of people to Hattiesburg, brings money to business. And about 10% of all the troops that went through there, and there are hundreds of thousands of troops that went through there, were black troops. Uh, here in the middle of Mississippi is this huge military base. I mean, it it's yet another thing that transforms Hattiesburg with federal power. Uh, and yet it too began to raise the race question. I mean, talk a bit about that because that's such a pivot in the history of this city. Yeah, so World War II saves the city of Hattiesburg. It saves a lot of places in the American South, a lot of families, I'll say, maybe not entire cities, but it just, the economy booms. The federal government steps in, stops, starts spending all this money. And yeah. it's another example where Jim Crow actually becomes inconvenient sometimes because Amer as America mobilizes, especially after Pearl Harbor, it's fighting a total war, you know, against the Japanese and the Germans. And the U.S. Army has to constantly think, okay, we have all these black volunteers, we want to draft black people into the Army, but we can't send them to these bases in the South, or we can only send a handful of them. And so a place like Hattiesburg was attractive because it had that black community that was, that was already existing. 
So yeah. they knew that when the black troops came to Hattiesburg, they could then go into the black community for their meals. They built a black USO, which is still the only, uh, it's the last standing independent black USO in the country, it's now a museum. But they knew they could send people to a place like Hattiesburg because of that black community, but they couldn't send them everywhere. And it fundamentally limited the way that America could mobilize for the war. Jim Crow at times, although it protected power and, and money for white people, it could be very inconvenient. Yeah. But at the same time, so this federal spending comes in and a lot of people focus on World War II as this watershed in American and African-American history because, you know, they point out that, well, we're fighting this war for democracy. How can we then look at the American South and understand what's going on there and say that we are, you know, the world's purveyor of democracy? And that's very much true. But I think one of the other things that we've really downplayed is this huge economic boom. Okay. To me, that's where the civil rights movement comes from. Right. Black people didn't need a war for democracy to understand that right. the constitutional rights were being violated. Right. But what happens is that there is this trickle down as there's all this investment in the South, especially. And of course, a lot of black people move to the North as well. And I think that's where you get a lot more opportunities for black institution building. They're doing the same things that they did in the 1930s. They're building up their schools. They're building up their churches. And then they begin fighting for civil rights more. So the Smith Drugstore, for example, in Hattiesburg, it gets a great boom with all these black troops that start coming through to cash their checks and get their tobacco. And the guy renovates the store. He joins the NAACP. And Medgar Evers is meeting in his back room office, you yeah. know, within 10 years. And that's, that's you know, honestly, I'm skipping over a big part of it. But that's that's a big part of the story of how race changed in America because of the economic boom of World War II. Absolutely. And it's a stunning moment in your book when Hammond Smith walks into the back room of his pharmacy. And there's Medgar Evers, uh, you know, the field secretary for the NAACP. So let's talk about one last uh, question here, and then I'll move to some of these great questions I'm getting from the chat. How did and why did Hattiesburg become such a center of the movement, the civil rights movement? It didn't happen overnight, to say the least. Uh, it happened because a Hammond Smith and many others joined a lawsuit and ended up in a you know major court case, et cetera. But and it ended up over you know the the dead bodies of a lot of people. And it was about voting, but it was about much more than that. How, how, why Hattiesburg? And why did it become such um, a mecca of uh, the movement and eventually the kind of center of Freedom Summer? So yeah, 1964, Freedom Summer in Mississippi, you know, a thousand white kids come down. And yeah. um, July 2nd, 1964 is a momentous day in civil rights history. It's, uh, it's the day Lyndon B. Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It's Medgar Evers' birthday. It's Thurgood Marshall's birthday as well. And um, in Hattiesburg, it's also the first day of Freedom School. And there's this incredible moment where these hundreds of kids pour into these churches to attend these freedom schools that are going to teach them how to join the civil rights movement. There's, there's, there's one man who attends these freedom schools who's 82 years old. He's as old as the city itself. And he says he just wanted to learn how to register to vote. And then, um, you know, so many kids come that they have to start closing the schools off. They say, okay, no more students, no more Freedom School students. And the kids start unlocking the windows and the doors to sneak their friends into school. And that moment is probably the apex of the civil rights movement in Hattiesburg. There are a couple, especially in 64. But, you know, I was interested in learning where that energy came from. 
Right. Where does that incredible energy come from that right. allows this this place to just explode when they get a chance in 1964? And where do those churches come from? What was happening in that community in the years prior that allowed for this moment to occur there? And answering that question largely became the book. To me, the answer to that question was this community that had been under development for so long. And then if you look at some of the institutions that were central to the civil rights movement in Hattiesburg, and you start to trace them back, well, gosh, some of them go all the way back to the 1880s and the 1890s, what yeah. Black people had been building there for decades. And so a lot of changes happened in America that led to the civil rights movement, certainly. But in local communities where all the action really happened, it was those institutions built so long before that that really facilitated the movement in places like Hattiesburg. And I'd just add to that, if, if, if readers out there are, are looking for a book that is not only about oppression, and it is, and suffering, and racism, but it's about how things actually can change. <laughs> This is a story. I mean, the, 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 the tremendous changes that happened in this place over 20 years are um, phenomenal. It's time for the audience Q&A, though, William, and I've got a lot of questions here in front of me. Let's start with, uh, with this one. Um, what was the role of women in that Black community? Can you say anything you know, distinctive about, uh, we always hear about church women, and they were terribly important. They had all these ladies' aid societies and so on. But what about the women of this community? Yeah. So, you know, it's a patriarchal society without a question. And the, the preachers are the central figures and the male business leaders are also the central figures. That's whose name um, is mostly printed in some of the news stories and things like that. But, you know, women, and I hope that I capture this sufficiently in the book, but women are really the engine of everything that's happening here. Women are the bridge leaders between Hattiesburg and Chicago. They're the ones that do the reporting for mm -hmm. the Chicago Defender about the local events and activities. And they run everything that happens in the churches. So, you know, there is, of course, the figurehead of the churches, um, but most of the organizations behind the churches, you know, somebody's doing the cleaning, somebody's putting the Bibles in place, people are cooking the meals. That's all driven by local black women. And local black women have this, this incredible role in their society where they're even more discriminated against than men in that they can only pretty much be teachers or domestic workers. And in those roles, they play these incredible, um, they play these incredible roles in the lives of the people who attend these schools, for example, both by cooking lunches for the schools and then teaching in the schools. But then women become the vanguard of the civil rights movement. After the 1950s, there are more female-led businesses, especially beauty shops, that begin to emerge. And the women that lead the movement in the 1950s and 1960s are the people, I think, that really usher things in. There's almost this moment where the men become a bit too conservative, and it's really women that are pushing at the forefront. You know, mm -hmm. we need to let the civil rights organizers come into here. And when a pastor said, well, I'm not sure if I want to let them use my church, it was always the women that had played the roles in organizing church activities who pushed and said, yes, you are going to open up your church to those young activists. You have a beautiful moment in the book where you describe that incredible mass meeting in St. John's Church in 1964, where I think virtually every major leader of the civil rights movement was there. Maybe King wasn't, but everybody else was. It's amazing. And women organized that. Now, here's a question that puts, puts you right back onto this federal government question. Uh, the question is, some say the federal government's implementation of welfare 
is what destroyed the African-American community. Uh, what are your thoughts on that and, and how has Hattiesburg been affected over time? There may be embedded in this question something about should we get, should we be nostalgic for this era or can we be too nostalgic for this era? Or, but what about that claim, particularly from the American right, that it is welfare that destroyed black communities? No, I mean, so in the 1960s, when black people were folded into the fabric of the American social safety net, mm. um, black poverty declined faster than any other moment in the history of America since emancipation. It's that moment where black poverty, I think it goes from 55 percent to like you know, 23 or 24 percent or something like that. It's this yeah. incredible decline. Part yeah. of it has to do with civil rights. Part of it has to do with access to social safety nets that white people had had since the 1930s. Right. And so because so many African-Americans were ineligible for you know, benefits that might help their schools or even sometimes literally ineligible for things like Social Security, um, they simply didn't have the same social safety nets. They organized many on their own, but that were provided through the federal government. And one thing that I do find that it's remarkable that you only hear this you only hear this argument about black people. We don't hear this argument about greatest, like the greatest generation of whites, for example, who received mm -hmm. more assistance from the federal government than any group of people to ever live on this continent, right? You, Nobody yeah. said all oh, that assistance, you know, that destroyed their community, that made them reliant on the federal government. That's never the argument that you hear. You only hear it about black folks. And I think one of the things that's happened is that people have moved out of black communities, they've desegregated, and that's certainly part of what's happening here, but they become more integrated in our broader public national sphere. And I mean, one of the things that we're seeing are these incredible opportunities that are open to more African-Americans. But I mean, also bear in mind that the income gap that we can easily measure today, you know, we're, we're not all that far away from it, right? My father was 18 years old when somebody like me first worked at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I worked. I'm the first generation in my family ever born outside of the Jim Crow South. I mean, you know, it's literally, right, just a few decades back, and there are so many people still living through this situation. But I think the, the most striking thing about questions like that is it's why are only Black people the, the folks who say, okay, now they're relying on the federal government, when we know by sheer net numbers, there are so many different institutions, there are so many white families who have also benefited from social safety nets decades before black people ever had access. You know, and only just to reinforce your point, I'm a white guy who was born in a federal veterans housing project in Flint, Michigan, uh, that I'm, I'm certain my working class dad paid almost no rent for, but there were no black people there. Uh, I don't know if it was segregated by law. I'm sure it was de facto and not de jure, but here he was a veteran with no money in a housing project paid for by the government. So anyway, uh, just to reinforce the point, there's a couple of great questions here about the dream and the quest for integration. And was integration, the, the question really is asked here, was integration really the best goal? I mean, so what about integration? And its long-term implications, I think, is what's embedded in this question. Yeah. You know, the thing that local Black leaders in Hattiesburg were fighting for the right to vote. So one of the Smith brothers at the center of my story 
had been trying to register to vote since 1934, 34, 36, excuse me. And he went down, he paid his taxes every year and he tried to register to vote, they said no. In 1950, he and several of his colleagues sued the state, they sued the local registrar, the guy who asked how many bubbles were in a bar of soap when you tried to register. Right. And they lost the suit. They couldn't get out of Mississippi, basically, with the suit, and they let it go. Of course, the National NAACP had another um, another path in mind. Of course, that was Brown versus Board of Education. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that is really misunderstood about Brown versus Board of Education is that it wasn't just about schools. And it right. didn't desegregate schools immediately. That didn't happen in Hattiesburg until 1964. It was about overturning Plessy versus Ferguson which one of the things that happened in American history was that we had these um, perverse Supreme Court decisions that violated the 14th Amendment before we ever even got started on this project of you know, emancipation. And so Plessy versus Ferguson fundamentally undercut the civil rights of African-Americans and it distorted the path toward justice, I think, over the next several decades. So I think you know, in Hattiesburg, in places like that, the issue was we want to have the right to vote, but you didn't get the right to vote without these other paths forward first because you, you couldn't get out of the courts, you know, right. at the end of the day. And so there had to be another path that made sure the federal government, again, came in and said, look, you have to give black people the right to vote. And then you could have another conversation, but you had to have that first. And I think, you know, as best understood, you know, in the way that we had it in this country, I don't think it had to necessarily happen that way. I think if black people had had the right to vote the entire time, um, you know, segregation would have looked very different. The path toward Brown would have looked very different. So I don't think it had to happen that way, but you know, that's that's the process that we had to overcome after, even after Reconstruction. And I suspect, uh, I mean, I know I do, but I suspect in your case, when you run into young people who are not sure if voting matters, boy, you've got some stories to tell them from this book, don't you, about why voting matters? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, vote, you know, I was teaching a, I was teaching a class. I taught at Hattie's, in Hattiesburg for a year. Oh, you did. I remember there yeah. was some referendum and teaching a class across the quad from a building named after a guy who was arrested and he later died because he tried to desegregate the school. Uh-huh. And I'm overhearing students talk about, you know, they're not going to vote. It doesn't matter for them. I mean, oh. voting should be the most important cultural dynamic, cultural and political dynamic of black life in America based on what was denied to so many African-Americans for so long. It should be the single most important thing. Bravo. There's a question here uh, about reparations. Uh, it's asking actually if, if, there, if you ran into any kind of reparations uh, organization or, or movement in Hattiesburg in your recent time down there, which is also a segue maybe to, to talking about, so what's Hattiesburg like today? Uh, what has happened to that old black community? And indeed, is there a new mobilization of any kind, uh, whether it reaches the reparation question or not? I think that, um, so in Hattiesburg, I never really came across the question of reparations. Yeah. To me, that has so much to do, to me, the strongest argument for reparations, and there, there are several, it has to do with, um, with slavery. And especially institutions like the one that I worked at that benefited directly from the enslavement of African Americans um, in, in real ways that we can count the dollars and we can find the people, you know. And so um, Hattiesburg, being a town that was founded years after emancipation, 
didn't benefit from the institution of slavery in quite the same way as many other places in the South. And so to me, the, the strongest part of the argument starts with that. And I think, you know, there are other questions we could ask about, well, what about federal funding? And we had all these New Deal programs that poured into different people's businesses that, you know, we have wealthy white families in Southern Mississippi who are wealthy because they had access to federal programs and people like the Smith family never did. So I think that sort of falls a little bit flat there. But I think in terms of broader reparations, you know, in, in a place like Mississippi, you know, this is why you have the argument about the Confederacy, because that's the next logical step. But you'd have to first admit or recognize that there was something wrong with not just even the Confederacy, but also the people that erected all these Confederate monuments and put the stars and bars on the state flag. The stars and bars are still on the state flag. Hattiesburg was named after General Nathan Bedford Forrest. General Nathan Bedford Forrest never knew anything about Hattiesburg. He never it's went there in the thousand years after he died, but right. they chose him as the leader of the Ku Klux Klan to name their city for him and the group that put up the Confederate monument named it for him. And then they helped establish and create Jim Crow in the city. And so, you know, that's a whole other conversation that goes well beyond slavery, but about Southern memory and about the disadvantages that African-Americans face that people don't want to have. Because if you recognize those systematic disadvantages, then it might suggest that there are things we could do today to even out the playing field. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th th there's a there's a big question here um, that I can boil down to this. Uh, is Hattiesburg a classic case of where the coronavirus, however long it lasts, is revealing and exposing uh, these long leftover racial disparities of this experience? I mean, is there a sense here? I mean, we hear a lot about this in major cities uh, that have been so hard hit by the by the COVID crisis. But here's a classic city in the South, and many of them, so built by the Jim Crow system. I mean, is that a black community in Mississippi that is going to come out of this uh, Corona era or whatever we call it, uh, suffering even more? I mean, it's, you know, a blanket statement is that it's hard to imagine any scenario in which African-Americans and other minorities and other poor people, quite frankly, whether you're black, white, whatever, yeah. um, aren't worse off. And, you know, this is something that has happened at every single turn since the civil rights movement, because the playing field was never level. So in a place like Hattiesburg, what happens after my book is that, you know, they get all this federal funding for hospitals and they get people get access to Medicare. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they get money for the school. And now it's the local hospital industry and it's the school, University of Southern Mississippi, that benefit. Well, the people who were already doctors, who were already living in the best neighborhoods, who already had an education, were the people best positioned to benefit from a post-Jim Crow society. And they've been doing just that for the last 50 or so years. And so it's almost like starting a race, you know, OK, 1964, we're done with this racism issue. And of course, we know that's not exactly true. But at the same time, we've never had equal opportunity to the access to federal resources that mm -hmm. have been provided in copious amounts by our federal government. And I imagine that local black business owners in Hattiesburg and elsewhere aren't the ones getting the huge checks from the federal government like Ruth Chris Steakhouse. You know, it's those people who are best positioned 
to do that already who then tap into federal resources. Yeah. Um, th th there's, a, there's a wonderful question here about going back to Chicago. When that Hattiesburg group, and that was a pretty large group, were they able to recreate a community in Chicago, a very different place, uh, very different kinds of work and labor? Uh, did, were you able to follow that up? I mean, I mean, the Chicago Great Migration is not the subject of your book, but but there's an a couple interesting questions here about what, what happened to those people in Chicago. Do, do we know, and did they recreate the same kind of community? Yeah, so you're right. It's not the subject of the book. I was more interested in Hattiesburg, and the Great Migration created a huge issue in Hattiesburg, and that's why I sort of followed them up to Chicago, and I thought that was right. so fascinating. But the Urban League studied that community very, very briefly, 1917, 1918. And that's where all of my evidence, my, my anecdotes come from. But, you know, I did keep a little bit of an eye on, especially some of the major players who I knew in Hattiesburg, who then migrated to Chicago. And as far as I could tell, they basically spread out throughout the city. I do not think that the neighbor, you know, that neighborhood, 1917, 150 of them right there. Mm -hmm. um, I think over as the years went on, Sure. Those folks and, you know, their children spread throughout the city, spread throughout the neighborhood, moved to other places and so on and so forth. But then this I have but I did keep track of this Hattiesburg Social Club and mm -hmm. the Hattiesburg Social Club lasted at least through 1966. So it lasted almost 50 years, at least it could have gone on even longer. And I thought that was just so fascinating. But, you know, people always knew folks, relatives back home, right, in Mississippi, but be it a cousin or an uncle or somebody like that. And of course, there was always this relationship between Hattiesburg and Chicago in that everybody that came up after that generation that had left faced that very same choice. Well, do I also, you know, go up to Chicago where I know I can find some folks, certainly from Mississippi, possibly from Hattiesburg, and then begin to settle among those very same networks? Yeah. Probably one more question here, William, or at least comment, and, and I can get you to comment on it. You have a wonderful line right, right at the end of the book um, where you say this has been a story of uh, losses embedded within iconic victories. I love that. It's a simple sentence, but I, I love that line, losses embedded in iconic victories. We have a tendency in this country, uh, in, in the popular conceptions of our history, to somehow believe that in America, in the end, everything is progress. Everything will somehow get better. Uh, and, you know, who doesn't want to believe that? Um, but you do have a story here of victories. This, this is, this is a, a, a trajectory heading toward the triumphs of the civil rights movement and the transformation of that society, but it came through lots of blood and terrible indignity, uh, lost generations when it came to education, lost generations when it came to, as you said, wealth building. Um, what, what, have you, what, do you, what can you say about what you've learned in this, about this old, old idea, about not just Southern history, but American history, that, it, that it's irony that makes it go around? that it's this combination of the tragedy with the triumph. Because that, that I think, is a, is a triumph of your book. I mean, we get to see people here who can survive oppression, 
but you don't get to see their survival without seeing their oppression. Yeah. I think that's the triumph of your book. Comment a bit on that, if you would. It's the story, I think, ultimately, that people should take from this. Yeah, well, I opened the book with some personal observations. You know, when I went, when I would go down there, I went to this Mobile Street Renaissance Festival. They have a festival. Uh-huh. Civil rights movement is all over the place in Hattiesburg. There's a Freedom Trail and all this and that. But they have a festival for the old black neighborhood, the era that happened, existed before the civil rights movement and the stores and the community and the stories of people that used to be there. And to me, that was just so fascinating because yeah. you know, who would want to live in the era of Jim Crow, of course, but when you spoke with people, they were nostalgic for the neighborhood that they grew up in because of the feeling that they had about being sure. a child in that community and the way that that community would bond itself together, you know, amidst all this oppression to try and help each other navigate life in the Jim Crow South. And I, I don't think anyone's nostalgic for Jim Crow, certainly, but they're nostalgic for that sense of community togetherness. Right. And I think that's one of the things that you can see all throughout the American South in every black neighborhood, you know, these places that have been gentrified or hollowed out. There are these yeah. places where these people once led such rich, vibrant, incredible, important lives. Yeah. And to me, the story of the book um, and probably the most important lesson going forward is the way that, that these people were able to do such incredible things and become such incredible individuals in spite of everything that they face. But you're right, there are lost generations. And as Americans, we love to tell ourselves the stories of the people that shone through the cracks. You know, right. we love the hidden figures, if you will, of the NASA program. But, you know, for every one of those women, right, you know, how many incredible minds have we lost as a country because yeah. we took one look at them and we said, you're a woman or you're black or you're brown or whatever. And we've never given ourselves a chance to truly tap into the incredible human resources that we have in this country because of these pre-existing lenses of race that prevent us from seeing people for their full possibilities. And because we have structures that don't allow for children to make it past six or seven years old without a real opportunity, I think we cheat ourselves. You know, the, the patriarch in the book, Turner Smith, was born into slavery. Mm-hmm. He was the son of sharecroppers. He lived in Jim Crow, Mississippi. He survived the Great Depression. And he produced four adult children who became doctors. I mean, that is remarkable. That's the pharmacist's pharmacist's father right there. Pharmacist's father. Just imagine what they could have done, what any number of people like that could have done if given equal opportunities. And I, you know, thinking about our world, thinking about our country today, you know that there are pockets where... There's, there are diamonds in the rough all over the place. And because of where they live, because of their race, because of their family history, whatever, they're not going to have an opportunity and we're not going to have an opportunity to learn and grow from them. And I think that's one of the great tragedies of American society. And I think people in our world, you know, looking back into history, are more interested in reconstruction. They're more interested in the civil rights movement. We're very deeply mm-hmm. interested in our history at this moment in time. And people are using terms like a third reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Perhaps maybe we could create a new society. Or a second new deal. A second and green new deal. The new deal is all over our language now, too. Right. Uh, That is perhaps as transformative as the civil rights movement or reconstruction was, not just in terms of solving our own personal lives, 
but yeah. in terms of paving a way for future generations to contribute to this American project. Well, you know, and what you just so beautifully described is, is frankly on the ballot this year. You know, it's not just about winners and losers, as some people say. It is about this, this crazy dream we have of equality, you know. Uh, and uh, um, well, I just want to say, I think we have run out of time, which is a shame. We could talk all night about this, William, whether the audience followed us along or not. Uh, but let me just say how grateful I am to have this opportunity to share this with you, uh, to have the chance to read your book. Um, the, the award, the, Z the Zocalo uh, Book Prize is uh, more than well-deserved. Um, congratulations again. Uh, there are also, I wanna say to the audience, um, transcripts of interviews that William has done uh, about this book on the Zocalo website. Uh, and uh, there are also other articles and essays uh, about this book and others in the Zocalo video archive. And uh, last, lastly, uh, let me thank the Zocalo uh, Public Square team for putting this together and putting this on. And thank you to all of you out in the audience who joined in tonight. Uh, uh, I think I can speak for William and say that we enjoyed it for sure. And especially, William, thank you to you. Thanks to everybody so much. Thank you so much, Professor Blatt. I really appreciate it. Oh, you bet. Thanks uh, for joining in. Sure. And th that's the end of our program for tonight. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep reading books out there. Thank you. <laughs>